Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. Resilient Cyber is sponsored by Acquia, a cybersecurity service, disabled veteran-owned small business that is passionate about enabling innovation and driving secure digital transformation. Acquia believes in guardrails over roadblocks and security as a business and mission enabler. Learn more at acquia.us. That's A-Q-U-I-A dot Before we start the episode, we want to give a big thank you to our season four sponsor, Nucleus Security. Meet Nucleus, the only risk-based vulnerability management platform purpose-built for the world's most complex enterprises. Nucleus takes the mountain of vulnerability data that is produced by your security stack and unifies it into one clean dashboard that helps you make sense of your assets and vulnerabilities. With Nucleus, users get a normalized and deduplicated list of vulnerabilities across network devices, cloud, applications, and more. Next, we layer in risk and vulnerability intelligence from sources like Mondiant to help you prioritize the vulnerabilities that matter most. Ready to see how Nucleus can help improve your vulnerability management program? Head to NucleusSec.com today. We want to take a moment to thank one of our Season 5 sponsors, Wiz. Wiz transforms cloud security for customers, including 35% of the Fortune 100, by enabling a new operating model. With Wiz, organizations can democratize security across the development lifecycle, empowering them to build fast and securely. Its cloud-native application protection platform, CNAP, drives visibility, risk prioritization, and business agility, and is number one based on customer reviews. Find out more at wiz.io. We want to take a moment to give a big shout out to one of our Season 5 sponsors, Aqua Security. Aqua Security is a pioneer in cloud-native security. From day one, Aqua's vision has been to deliver a complete, full lifecycle security solution in one holistic platform. It is not enough to simply see an attack. You need visibility into what's happening across the entire software development lifecycle, and you must be able to stop these attacks in real time. 40% of Fortune 100 companies and numerous federal agencies turn to Aqua Security to accelerate their secure innovation. Aqua Security, protecting your cloud-native world from code to cloud and back. Visit info.aquasec.com, Chris Hughes, to learn more and grab a complimentary copy of my new book on software supply chain security titled Software Transparency. Thank you for joining the Resilient Cyber Show. My name is Chris Hughes, along with my co-host, Dr. Nikki Robinson. Hey, everybody. And today, we're joined by Allie Mellon. Allie, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited to chat with you. You have a pretty interesting background and some different uh, focus areas that I think will be interesting to dive into. But before we get to that, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. So i um, been in technology for over a decade, started my career doing research out of MIT, got a degree in computer engineering before becoming a hacker, um, spent a few years running a consultancy before becoming a security practitioner and switching to the good, to the good guys. And uh, then moved on and started working at Forrester. I've been with Forrester for a little over two and a half years now, and I cover security operations. So everything people process technology in the SOC. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And it lends perfectly to my first question, too, because we've been hearing more conversations about SecOps, right? Like there was the DevSecOps conversation and DevOps and things, but we're hearing more about SecOps now. So can can you talk a little bit more about sort of what it means, what type of research is going on or, or information in this area? Definitely. So this, I mean, I love to talk about this. I could talk about this all day. <laughs> um, so security operations is really the the function and discipline around detecting, investigating, responding, and hunting cyber attacks as they're happening, actual attacks as they're going on. Um, I like to create that distinction because a lot of times I see some conflation between things that IT operations is doing versus what security operations is doing. But the separation is really important because, I mean, security op- some security operations teams, if they're small enough and they're more focused on IT operations, will be doing things like working with firewalls or patching things. But it's very um, rare, and, and especially in very large enterprise, we see a ton more separation where security operations is just doing detection and response. And that makes a lot of sense because they're incredibly busy doing that as it is. They don't need to pick up more extraneous things. Yeah, I wanted to ask you as well, you had a, a recent blog topic. I know you don't necessarily specifically focus on vulnerability management, but you had a kind of blog that you co-authored with someone that was diving into like the distinction between vulnerability management and exposure management. I thought it was interesting. You know, how do you see the difference between the two and, and the convergence of the two? Thank you. Yeah, no, that was a really fun blog. I worked on that with Eric Nost, who covers vulnerability management and exposure management for us. Um, one of the privileges that I have working at Forrester is that I lead one of our seven priorities within security and risk, specifically for defending against um, cyber attacks. And that includes zero trust, includes VRM, it includes my coverage. And so I often get to work with other analysts on the team on their coverage areas and get to have some of these um, fun brainstorming conversations with them. And that's one of the things that, uh, that Eric and I did leading up to this. So um, really great blog. He does a lot of great coverage of this space. But when it comes to to the difference between VRM and exposure management, ultimately, it's it's a scope thing, right? At the end of the day, there's a lot of different pieces within exposure management that go beyond VRM, including even things like breach and attack simulation, bringing that into the puzzle. And there are so many products that are coming out that are a part of or an extension of vulnerability management that at a certain point, you just have to think, is this really going to be just the vulnerability management market? Or have we gone to the point where there's a lot more coming into it to understand the ultimate exposure of the business, whether it's even things like attack surface management coming into that picture as well. And Eric thought that this had reached a tipping point where it was worth talking about those differences and talking about what it means for security teams that they're going to start seeing a lot more around exposure management and to be careful and wary of, the ways that vendors are positioning that because while many are talking about it through one lens of VRM or tax service management or breach and attack simulation, it's ultimately about bringing a lot of those pieces together into one offering and the value that you can provide when you have that. I I love that distinction between the terminology. This is one of the the biggest areas that I've been studying in um, cybersecurity in general and vulnerability management space is that you know, we use these umbrella terms to mean lots and lots of different things. And sometimes it gets lost, like what the actual intention of and the mission of what we're focusing on. So I, I love the distinction there. Um, so can you talk a little bit just at sort of a, a higher level, like what got you interested in research and writing and um, really getting into this space? Because I know 
you know, we've met some other really great security researchers and people in the industry. And I feel like there's such a pull to, you know, to bring more research into the space. So I'd love to hear uh, what got you interested in it. Yeah, it's a really good question. Thank you. Um, It's interesting because (laughs) it was not where I expected to end up. I mean, I went to college for computer engineering. I actually took a history of war class so I could get out of a writing class because I really did not want to do anything with writing. Um, And here I am writing like long, long thousands of uh, word reports on a regular basis. But really what, um, what struck me about it is I think that we're at a tipping point within security, within information security specifically, where there's a lot of people who are really knowledgeable, but there's not a lot built around what security is as a practice, as a discipline. We have some training around this. We obviously have some cybersecurity degrees that you see in some colleges. But at the end of the day, a lot of people get into this job, get into this field by just jumping in and doing it and figuring it out themselves. And so one of the things that I hope to bring and that I was really driven by through this research and through the opportunity that I've had at Forrester was, hey, what can I do to set some constraints around the discipline and to help people understand if you were doing this, things would go a million times better than what you may have started doing on an ad hoc basis. Um, And I I see a lot of a lot of value with that, especially around a lot of the security operations research I've done, because that's it's one example where security operations is incredibly important to the security organization. It's where a lot we get a lot of the initial talent that goes to the rest of the security org, obviously doing something really important around making sure that breaches don't happen. Um, But at the end of the day, we haven't, it really came together as a very ad hoc function as a, hey, we're going through a breach. Let's get people on this. Let's do it. And now we have an opportunity to really turn that into a discipline like we've seen with things like DevOps and with product teams and to actually make it a role that is, first off, interesting long term, not just in the immediacy of wanting to get into cybersecurity, but also something that helps them get to the next level and helps them learn more about not just security, but how to practice security in a way that makes sense and helps the business. Yeah, just a quick comment for me before turning back to Chris. I I totally see the benefit of that. I think it, it is one of the most powerful uh, pieces of research and writing and, and sort of building this catalog of information that's available to people is that you're sort of helping to, you know, mature the discipline, you're sort of helping to build these separate programs so that, you know, when people are coming into security, because I know when I first came into security, I was like, I just want to be in security. And it was like, yeah, but what do you want to do? I was like, I don't know, but I definitely want to do security. And so, you know, once I did more research and finding out there's this great cybersecurity mind map out there that shows all the different disciplines, I reference that all the time. Um, But I love that that building out those different pieces can actually help the people who want to get into cybersecurity make it interesting and help give them some, some great resources. I hope so. You know, I think it's, um, it's one of these things where uh, when I first joined Forrester, I was like, is this going to be something where I can, where I can do that type of thing? Because whenever I think of industry analysts and market research firms, they're always so focused on the technology, right? Forrester wave, Gartner magic quadrant, um, very focused on like, how do we evaluate the technology that people are using? But for me, there's way more value in like, obviously doing the wave is important. I've done three waves so far. I'm about to kick off another, but at the end of the day, without the context of the process and people side, 
<laughs> you're not going to be able to actually provide good recommendations on what products to use. So I try to really balance where a lot of my work is focused on the people process side. And then like maybe like 80, 20, 20% is focused on that technology piece. Yeah, I think that's really refreshing to hear, especially, you know, from someone from an organization like Forrester, because obviously there's the quadrant and it's driven by things like marketing and, and buzz in the industry and investments and venture and, and startups and, and all that stuff in the tech ecosystem. Uh, but ultimately, security is not a product. It's a process. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a mindset or a methodology. And then I like what you said about trying to mature things mm-hmm. through operations, because, you know, a lot of times it's just kind of ad hoc firefighting. Let's, let's get this under control. You're talking about kind of building into a practice, a discipline that's codified and then has a long-term, you know, strategic opportunity for people to grow and not just get burnt out of the firefighting. Like it's natural practice, a domain that you could become an expert in. Uh, so that's really refreshing to hear too. Uh, and I think you threw out, you know, something that leads into my next question. You said you took a history of war class. I think it was. You said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I know you focus on, you know, uh, nation state threats as well in your in your practice there. Um, so I'm curious your thoughts. You know, we're seeing many people think that we're basically seeing cyber become another domain of warfare, especially when you look at things like Ukraine and Russia and conflicts like that. You know, what is your thoughts around nation states and cybersecurity as part of war? Yeah, so I'm a huge history of war buff. Like I, I'm really fascinated by the way the different wars have been waged over time and the way that cybersecurity is changing that. Um, I think that it's a pivotal part of this conversation and one that kind of gets like one of my challenges with it is everybody's like, okay, nation states. Yeah. We know we need to defend against those, but also I'm getting hit with commodity ransomware on a regular basis. So like, what is my priority right now? Right. I actually think that the two are more interrelated than we give them credit for. And there's a ton of value in looking at this through the lens of both, um, which we do to an extent But we miss a few pieces because everybody's really focused on attribution, right? Okay, what nation state threat actor was it? When in reality, I think we need to be more focused on what techniques are they using and when are they using them? Because what I see from nation states, if you look at some of the nation state activity, first off, it's all driven by geopolitical means, right? You've got some of these more steady state attacks like espionage um, uh, or like information access and manipulation. And then on the other hand, you have some of these more very tactical detrimental attacks like destructive wear, um, ransomware, just trying to to knock systems out, which is what we see in situations of war, uh, kinetic warfare, especially in places like Russia or in Israel, wherever the, wherever the conflict may be breaking out. Um, both are challenging for organizations, both affect private enterprises. And that's something that's a big priority to me because at Forrester, that's what we ultimately talk the most about is um, how does the private enterprise handle these situations? And we often kind of see nation state activity is, okay, why isn't the government helping us with this? But in reality, like for years and years and years, the private sector has been the one who has been facing nation state attacks and defending civilians against nation state attacks, defending citizens against nation state attacks. So we're in it, you know, and we've been in it for a while. And even the work that we can do with the government to try and get ahead of these types of attacks is fraught, right? Different organizations either can't work with the government, won't work with the government, don't trust the government, or they are trying to figure out the bounds that make sense for them to work with the government in certain situations, or they just find that the government isn't really great at some of this. I mean, I see that a lot, um, unfortunately. And I think CISA has done a lot to change, to try to change that perception and to, to try to bring some, some sense of leadership to this. 
But there is this other side of it, which is, okay, you've got the nation state attacks happening, right? And in and of themselves, it's like, yeah, we accept that. But now we're seeing the regulation come into place because governments are recognizing this is actually affecting our citizens. And we need to make sure that things like breach disclosure rules are in place so that people know when these types of attacks have taken place, when their data has been accessed. And that adds a whole other layer to this conversation because it means that you need to prepare for nation state attacks differently because you need to prepare for them through this lens of who do I need to report this to and when? And if you're looking at a government like the US, it becomes incredibly complicated because everything is so decentralized when it comes to federal versus state. And even within federal, the different divisions that you're going to have to answer to when these types of things happen. We saw that with Colonial Pipeline, where organizations within the federal government came out of the woodwork and were like, hey, I want my pound of flesh for this. I need to know what's going on. So it becomes incredibly complex very quickly. And for very large enterprises, like that's just one example of one country. For many of these, they're they're multinational, they're in multiple places, and they have to deal with this across a bunch of different uh, regions. So I think it's an incredibly complicated issue. I love looking at it through the lens of things like military doctrine to get a better understanding of when these attacks might happen and why. An example of this is like, if you look at North Korea, they use their cyber attacks for plundering, which is like, it feels so like, oh my God, it's like a pirate, you know, coming out of the woodwork. We haven't seen this in so long, but they're plundering so that they can, out of cryptocurrency and crypto wallets, so that they can use this for their, to fund their nuclear program. Like that's a serious problem that the private sector does not want to be feeding. <laughs> so it's very important to, um, to think about the different ways that you can see these nation states targeting you. And I base a lot of it around, um, around that military doctrine and around what they're doing geopolitically and how it can help them for their geopolitical ends. Yeah, a lot of things you said there just really resonate with uh, books I've read in the past couple of years that I want to make a couple of plugs for. Uh, one is called yeah. Battlefield Cyber. Uh, it talks about like if you have a computer, you're essentially a, you're on the battlefield. You're part of this you know endeavor in some shape or form, and uh, it's really great talking about nation states and, and conflict between us and China and other places. Uh, and then another great one is called The Fifth Domain. Uh, and that one talks about, you know, the country, the companies involved and, you know, how nation states are doing things for different purposes. Like you talked about uh, North Korea may be carrying out these activities for to get revenue or, or, or money to carry out certain, you know, illicit act- activities or behaviors uh, or fund nuclear programs like it dives real deep into that. So both those books are great. Definitely recommend uh, people check those out. That's awesome. Yeah. And I will say that the one caution I do want to say is um, we are very lucky that cyber attacks have not been treated as part of something like cons escalation ladder, right? That they haven't, that cyber attacks that happen on a particular nation haven't led to kinetic warfare. And we should do everything we can to make sure that that does not happen because ultimately we need to make sure that there is some separation here, that activities that are within the digital domain do not extend into the physical domain. Um, excluding, of course, when they're used in conjunction with with physical warfare. Um, there's a lot of really great work that's being done here and being done to try to further some initiatives around, okay, let's standardize on what rules of war we have for the cyber domain. And that needs to continue. And we need to prioritize that because we don't want to end up in a situation where we see escalations happening because of cyber conflict into physical warfare. 
Yeah, a couple uh, quick, th- quick thoughts on me uh, from me on that topic before I go to my next question with you is like, it is interesting to dive into that and see, you know, what is the threshold where it moves beyond cyber to physical? And now with the increased, uh, you know, cyber physical systems, uh, what could their physical impacts be of these cyber attacks? And then also, it's kind of like a thousand pinpricks, like with enough cyber attacks that can impact your economy, your business, your nation. You know, does it become an act of war? And, and what, what what does that line look at look like? Uh, so that's a pretty fascinating topic and uh, definitely a philosoph- philosophical one, too. Uh, so my last question for you is you've talked a lot about uh, SecOps as well in the in, in a earlier parts of the conversation. I know you focus on that. You know, we're seeing a, a growing uh, practice around detection engineering, detection as code. Um, you know, kind of the evolution of the traditional kind of SOC and SIEM. Uh, what are your thoughts around that, the, the emerging practice of detection engineering and what the SOC of the future or SIEM of the future may look like? I love this topic. Um, as a as a former computer engineer, it's very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I've written a lot about it. And I think it's the future of security operations. I mean, when I think about security operations as a problem, we have too much data coming in. We do not innovate enough from the standpoint of building new detections and making sure those detections are working. And we have a struggle over ownership of those detections. You know, we, we've often had a separate content management team that was responsible for building uh, rules and detections. And then the security operations function is just trying to close tickets as fast as they can. These are the same exact problems that we've seen in the software development world that we saw 10 years ago in the software development world. And the way that software development handled this was to move to agile and was to move to more of a DevOps engineering mindset. And we need to do that in security operations. We are facing the exact same problems. Agile is by no means perfect, but it is one of the best ways that we've seen to approach this problem. And there are so many gains that we've seen with companies like Netflix and LinkedIn and many security vendors where they've taken this approach and have seen such dramatic improvement to their operations, to their ability to iterate on detections, to their ability to respond faster, to reduce false positives. So to me, this is one of the imperatives of security operations and one of the ways that we can turn security operations as a function into a practice instead of just focusing it around a particular product or proficiency in a particular product. Yeah, this is so interesting to me because it almost, I see the the benefits of, you know, what you're discussing around SecOps is very much how I feel like chaos engineering has been sort of translated for chaos security engineering, right? It's, it's this idea that, you know, you're trying to inherently break systems, you know, through a scientific method, right? You're using this hypothesis-based approach, but the idea is overall you're building resiliency into your system. So you're essentially you know, breaking your own stuff so that if someone comes in and tries to do DDoS attacks or things like that, that you have resiliency in place and you're building that in proactively. So hopefully you can reduce the amount of detections, right? That reduce the amount of uh, alerting and noise that you have around some of these common types of attacks. Um, But so before I take us to our last question for you, I wanted to ask you, is there anything you wanted to discuss that's going on at Forrester? Anything you're writing about? Anything that you have upcoming that uh, you wanted to, to chat about today? Yeah, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to shamelessly plug some of my stuff. Um, We have an event coming up in November on the 15th and 16th um, in D.C. and virtual that is going to be uh, covering a bunch of different topics. I'm going to be talking about detection engineering. I'll be talking about generative AI and its use in security tools. And we have like 
many, many other sessions with more of the analysts on the team. So if you can make that, please do. It's going to be really fun. I can't wait to be in person again um, with everyone this year. But uh, besides that, I think that uh, I have a couple of other reports that are coming out soon on generative AI and security tools, on SOC metrics that are all going to be really cool. And I'll be publishing blogs so that people can still get some of the value out of the reports without being a four-star client. So make sure you check that out. Awesome. Okay. So follow Allie on LinkedIn, I think, yeah, is the, is the message. And watch out because there's going to be some cool blogs coming out. Okay, great. Um, so that's going to take us to our last question for you, which I'm very interested with your background um, from computer science and hacking to research and everything in between. What does cyber resiliency mean to you? Cyber resiliency. Excellent question. Um, this actually came up at RSA conference a couple of years ago. Uh, I was speaking there in 2021 and that was like the theme of the event. And so this is something that uh, is very important to me because I think about it a lot. And I think security operations is actually a pretty fundamental part of this. To me, cyber resiliency is about how you bounce back and how effectively you bounce back. I think that one of the coolest things about our field is that at the end of the day, it's never done. We're always having to change and innovate and improve. And we are always faced with attacks that can potentially get past our defenses and how we respond to that in the moment is what really decides whether or not we succeed and decides our resiliency. And so I often think about security through the lens of it's not about what happens. It's about how you respond to it. I think about a lot of things in life this way, to be honest, is uh, it's a lot about resiliency in general. And um, so that's the the biggest thing to me with cyber resiliency is like, how are you responding to what's happening and how are you making sure that your response is as strong as it can possibly be and that you bounce back as quickly as possible? Yep. Great answer. I love that. Um, well, I wanted to say a huge thank you, Ali, for joining us today. We covered everything from detection engineering to SecOps and um, everything in between research as well. So a huge thank you. Thanks for coming today and talking to us. Uh, that'll take us out for this week. We'll see everybody next week.